0: Hello, good evening and welcome to the German Historical Institute. My name is Andreas Gestrich, I'm the director and it's, uh, of the Institute. It's a really great pleasure, first of all, to welcome our distinguished guest speaker, Professor Dan Diener, this evening, who will be introduced in a minute by Daniel Wildman. Um, it's wonderful that the, um, uh, the annual uh, general meeting of the Uh, German History Society has grown so much and it's wonderful that you always try to return to the German Historical Institute when when your conferences are in London. The conferences of the uh, German History Society started here in this room. Uh, For many years the room was big enough to house the whole conference but now, uh, the, yeah, the conference has uh, grown over the years, and it 's really a great pleasure that uh, obviously German history is such a lively field in, in Britain. I keep telling my colleagues in Germany uh, it 's absolutely unbelievable in germany there 's exactly one chair for british history uh, uh, and if you see the other way around, how lively interest in uh, in German history is in Britain is absolutely overwhelming and really very um, yeah comforting and uh, very good for us. So uh, welcome uh, to the to the uh, opening uh, lecture of the of the annual general meeting of the German History Society. Um, I'm sure we have um, a very interesting. Uh, two days uh, when we continue at uh, Queen Mary and I will hand over now uh, to first the uh, chairperson uh, of the German uh, History, History Society, Liz Harvey, and then to Daniel Wittmann. So welcome again from us and uh, as usual the procedure is that we have a lecture and uh, discussion afterwards and then you are invited to a glass of wine here next doors.
1: Thank you, Andreas. Um, I'd like to welcome you all here today on behalf of the German History Society. And as Andreas said, this lecture tonight is also a launch event for our annual conference. And we're really honoured to have Professor Dandina here as our opening keynote speaker. And like everyone else here, we're really looking forward to his lecture. Before I hand over, I just want to say some thanks. Um, A number of people, obviously, have been involved in preparing tonight's event. I'd particularly like to start by thanking Andreas Gestrich and the German Historical Institute for providing this magnificent setting for our launch. Um, The German Historical Institute has been incredibly generous to the German History Society, and yet again, we, we want to just acknowledge all that we owe to you. Um, I'd also like to thank, in his absence, uh, Felix Römer and also Carol Sturks and Anita Bellamy, um, colleagues here at the GHIL, for all their help uh, making it happen tonight. I'd also like to thank the Leo Beck Institute and Daniel Wiltmann and his colleagues for co organising tonight's event. It is a sort of co hosted event with the Leo Beck Institute, and we're delighted that that's worked out so well. I'd also like to mention now and thank and point out uh, Professor Christina von Hordenberg as the host uh, um, on behalf of Queen Mary of the annual conference, which, as Andreas just said, will continue tomorrow at at Queen Mary. Just as a small organisational thing, I think probably most of you who are attending the annual conference will have already spotted that you can register here tonight. You can talk to Craig Griffiths, downstairs and pick up your packs and that might just save a little time tomorrow but uh, craig will be here afterwards as well so if you want to register and haven't yet done so please do christina would like to say a few words on behalf of queen mary um so i'll just hand over to you uh, christina a very warm welcome to all of you on behalf of Queen Mary University
2: and Queen Mary School of History, particularly those who we, we will meet tomorrow. Of course, you can continue tomorrow uh, at Queen Mary. You can get your re- registration badges and your packs as well if you don't do so tonight. And I also just wanted to show you my face. So if, there anything, if, if
1: anything goes wrong, you can direct your questions towards me or to Craig Griffiths, who has been wonderfully organizing this whole event so far. Okay, thank you. So now I'd like to hand over to Daniel Wilkman. Um, who is the acting director of the the Leo Beck Institute, uh, as I say, co-host of tonight's event. And the Leo Beck Institute is also sponsoring a panel tomorrow morning entitled To Be Jewish or To Be German. So, Janu will chair tonight's event and introduce Professor Dina.
3: Thank you very much, Liz. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very happy to welcome you to um, tonight's keynote lecture at this very splendid venue, the German Historical Institute. My name is Daniel Ritmann I am the acting director of the Lealberg Institute and my thanks go firstly to Elizabeth Harvey, to Andreas Gestrich and to Christina von rodenberg to make it possible to bring Dan to London. He's our guest speaker and I'm very happy and very glad to introduce him. Dan is professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, in the Department of History. He's also professor emeritus at the University of Leipzig, also at the Department of History. He was, for quite many years, director of the Simon Dubnoff Institute for Jewish History Culture in Leipzig, precisely from 1999 to 2014. And he has hailed numerous Guests and visiting professorships in places such as Munich, Vienna, Oxford, Princeton, or Stanford. He has also been awarded several prizes, such as the Ernst Bloch Prize in Germany, the Premio Caballo in Italy, or very recently the Leipzig Wissenschafts Prize. Right. Now, what are his research interests? let me just mention the most important ones of his research interest. Firstly, the history of the 20th century, or the Near East and German history, or the history of National Socialism and Shoah, and last but not least, modern Jewish history. Dan Diener has published widely in all these fields, and I'd like to mention just some of his publications and I will restrict myself to his books only. First for example, the book Das Jahrhundert verstehen, published in 1999, and the book has been translated into Czech, Kuwait, Polish, Hebrew, Turkish, Italian, and English, of course, by the name of Cataclysm, a history of the 20th century from Europe's edge. All the book, Versículo the Zeit, Über den Stimmstrand der Arabischen Welt. Firstly published in German in 2005, then translated into Italian, Turkish, Arabic, and again English, of course. The English title is Lost in the Sacred, um, Why the Muslims were strangely <laughs> published by University of Princeton Press. Or, very recent, this one, Rituelle Distanz, Israel's Deutsche Frage. Um, the book has been published about two months ago, so it's really, really new. And as you can hear, if you look at the title, it's not about Germany's, shall we say, Jewish question. No, it's about Israel's German question. And what you can see here, for Dan Dimner, it is very language is extremely important to analyze this question. I'll come to this in a second. He was also the editor or co-editor of numerous books, yearbooks, journals, and I would like to mention one which is which is of particular importance, namely the Encyclopedia Judaica Kishion Kultur, the English, the Encyclopedia of Jewish European Cultures, um, published in seven volumes since 1911. I think the last volume is going to publish this autumn. As I mentioned before, language. Language is at the centre of Dundin's work and thinking. And Dahn coined quite a lot of terms which have not only become key terms in our field of research, for us as well, but also become key terms for cultural and political debates in Germany such as Zivilisationswelt, or Versiegel der Seins, or Gegenrationalität, very crucial when we discuss Jewish councils under Nazi rule or very beautiful Gegenlangfige Gedächtnisse. These terms are really difficult to translate into English, but they are at the same time very visual multi-layered, but also very, very precise, and they opening perspectives, very new perspectives on burning historical questions. Tonight, Dandin is going to talk about another term, Rituelle distance. or in English, lights of Reserve, the German Israeli counter in Luxembourg, 1952, down
2: Well, thank you very much for that uh, very generous introduction. I'm happy to be here, I'm happy to be in London, and I'm happy to be at the German Historical Institute for such an event as the annual event of the German Historical Association. I wanted to introduce my presentation which is a part of a much larger project. And it would be, I think, much more interesting to discuss it later after having presented my paper, but still in order to give you the direction. It's a larger project about uh, political theology, about the transformation of fundamental concepts, of uh, Jewish existence from the religious into the secular world. And my present paper, my presentation today, deals with a moment, a moment of 30 minutes. It's a micrological introspection into the transformation of belonging which took place in those crucial years after 1945 in the wake of the Holocaust. But let me start with my paper. The mood was frosty in the town hall of the city of Luxembourg that early morning of September 10th, 1952. And the chill prevailed when the delegations of the Jewish people, represented by the fledgling State of Israel and the claims conference on one side, and the recently established Federal Republic of Germany on the other, met face to face for the world to see in the Salle de mariage, the ceremonial hall of the Cercle de Salle Flamand. There were good reasons for keeping a visible distance. The representatives of the Jewish people had decided as contrary to widespread sentiment among substantial segments of the Jewish public, particularly in the State of Israel, to conclude the so-called Reparations, Wiedergutmachungs, or Shilomim Agreement, a treaty on restitution and indemnification with the Federal Republic, the legal successor State of the German Reich. From its very outset, the undertaking had been ambivalent. That ambivalence was manifested even before the signing when the heads of the delegations of the parties to the agreement decided by proxy not to give speeches or exchange pleasantries during or immediately after the signing of the agreement. The persistence of dissent was to be demonstrated in the public hall, despite the diplomatic accord that had been achieved. A handshake sealing the settlement was to be carefully avoided. Silence was to prevail. When in the early morning both delegations strode into the hall separately through opposite doors, muted voices were barely audible. People took the seats across from one another in silence at the massive ceremonial table. Surrounded by the delegations, Federal Chancellor Konrad Adenauer, who was also serving as foreign minister at the time, and his Israeli counterpart Moshe Sharet, silently put their signature on the two copies of the final document. The apparent protocols were signed by Nahum Goldman as president of the Claims Conference. The diplomatic etiquette. Of ostentatious reservation agreed upon beforehand had been observed. In place of worlds left unspoken, images of the event endure. The so called episodes of the ch- speeches not held had been amply captured for posterity by a photographer. The images seemed intended to attest. The Germans and Jews had laid the foundations for a new beginning just a few years after the catastrophe that would come to be called the Holocaust. Such a reading seemed congenial to the German side. Yet this new beginning differed fundamentally from the former common bond between Jews and Germans now being disclaimed by history. From this juncture onward, another relationship would predominate, manifested by a sharply drawn line of disparity. On this footing and against the backdrop of catastrophe, Jews and Germans sought a viable mode of coexistence in keeping with the requirements of the day. The new constellation was choreographed on the stage in Luxembourg by mutually mute delegations. It appeared as though a spell, the aura of a ban, a kind of tacit prohibition had been cast upon the encounter. The impression was in keeping with the sentiments of the Jewish-Israeli side. The choreography of visible discord amidst restrained and muted rapprochement had already been demonstrated by the Israeli negotiators during previous talks on restitution, opening on March 20, 1952, in the Hotel Castel Ud near The Hague in the Netherlands. And that for good reasons. Only shortly before the Israeli government had succeeded with no small effort in obtaining the parliamentary accord for direct negotiations with Germany. This had been achieved despite great public indignation and vocal opposition in the Knesset. The debate that had raged in the Knesset for three days in early January was one of the most dramatic debates ever to shake the body. Just several years after the catastrophe in Europe and the establishment of the State of Israel, enraged parliamentarians in language replete with liturgical echoes appealed to the government in Jerusalem not to tarnish the honor of Israel by engaging in direct contact with the Germans. The Israeli negotiators at the talks in Vassana had been present at that Knesset debate. For years afterwards, one of them later reported they lived under the impression of that dramatic event, the reverberating echoes of which accompanied them into the negotiations as a kind of holy mission, in order to fulfill that sacred ordinance, if not in, con- in content, then at least in form, it was imperative to keep a distance from the Germans. But keeping a distance from the Germans proved not easy task for the Israeli negotiators. The simple fact that the members of the Israeli delegation were all Jews of German-Jewish origin, in fact were Germans in terms of past habitus, led to concerns that their cultural background would evoke burdensome inhibitions in the deliberations. These concerns had been voiced earlier by the director of the West European desk in the Israeli foreign ministry, Gershon Avner, concerning an initial encounter that was to take place in Paris. Avner, later spokesman of the Israeli negotiation delegation in Vassanar, and himself of German-Jewish origin, urged the appointment of an Israeli official with fluent knowledge of German, but without the burden of a German-Jewish personal background, not handicapé, as he put it in his internal guidelines. His suspicion that the German-Jewish origin of the Israeli negotiations could have an injurious effect on the course of the deliberations would, at a later stage, be confirmed. The initial distance maintained by the Israeli negotiations of the West German German interlocutors in Wassenaar increasingly began to crumble. It became difficult to suppress the fact that their shared German culture would ultimately prove more powerful than a ritual distinct line of demarcation drawn between the two parties. In the opening of the negotiations in Vassanar, the Israeli side had taken elaborate precautions to ensure a ritual distance. The delegations were to enter the room one after the other With a time interval of five minutes in between to prevent any accidental encounters between delegation members in the halls. Likewise, to be avoided was the trust engendering custom of shaking hands, which was to be substituted by a silent bow. Alongside the stipulations of restrained body language, the choreography of distance was to culminate in the Israeli refusal. ...to use German as a language of interaction and negotiations. Nothing would have been more natural than to communicate among one another in German... ...a language familiar to all participants... ...and in fact the native language of all the negotiators taking part. A language, perhaps the language of Jewish communication and learning... ...German had in the eyes of the Jews worldwide, particularly in the eyes and ears of Israeli Jews, become contaminated to the core. It was, welcome in the public, it was unwelcome sorry, in the public sphere, and especially in matters of state. The desire, ritually imbued, to purge everything German in the aftermath of catastrophe was present at the establishment of the state of Israel. It sank deep roots into the fabric of Jewish collectivity, then crystallizing and marked by the time icon of memory of 1945-1948. The prohibition rejected all emblems of German belonging that de- Jewish belonging that derived from a German matrix, in particular the German language, formerly so prevalent in the culture of Ashkenazi Jewry. The retreat of that medium from the public sphere, a tendency observable in the in Palestine long before the catastrophe and due to Zionist endeavors to forge a Hebrew nation, took on the character of an exorcism. The collective ban on everything German was further intensified by the refutation of German Jewish emancipation, which had fallen into this stand of Jewish history was considered ruptured, entirely failed, even misconceived from the very beginning. The German Jewish experience of acculturation became stigmatized in Jewish collective awareness. The damage everything, the damage affecting everything German was manifested in the administrative provisions of the Israeli Foreign Office. In a memo directed to leading collaborators in his agency, covering the scenario of the scheduled negotiations in the Netherlands, Shabtai Rosen, the minister's legal adviser, examined in alia the question of which language to use in officially publishing the negotiations' results. If Hebrew, as Israel's national language, was to be considered then, in Rosen's legal judgment, the agreement ought to be reciprocally published in German in keeping with international diplomatic custom. But the German would have to appear side by side with the Hebrew version in the Israeli official legal gazetteer. That would constitute a highly disagreeable conjuncture, actually an unacceptable transgression. Less agitated by no less awkward the vex- vexatious question of language can be detected to the notations of Alexander Burka, allegation counsellor second class in the German Foreign Service. Burka was a person beyond reproach. Also not Jewish, he had turned his back on Germany after the Christian night pogrom of November 38 and left for the United States, where he became an academic assistant to Heinrich Brüning, the ill fated former Reich Chancellor, then teaching at Harvard. The returnee Burker had been assigned by his office within the Chancellery, the Department of Foreign Affairs, to initiate prospective negotiations with the representatives of the Jewish people. To that end, he met with Noah Baruch, the chair of the European section of the World Jewish Congress. Baruch, a confidant of Nachum Goldman, pointed out that due to the necessity of maintaining distinct symbolic distance, it was absolutely essential that the scheduled negotiations would be conducted in a neutral language, irrespective of the fact that the designed Israeli negotiators, as was well known, were fluent in German. Baruch asked Berker to determine whether the head of the German delegation, Professor Franz Böhm, an order liberal lawyer, one of the fathers of the German social market economy scheme and former rector of Frankfurt University, was fluent in English or French. Unable to confirm this, it was stated that Böhm was prepared to have his words translated into English by an interpreter. However, foreseeing the upcoming, Baruch appended his conversation with Burke saying that in the course of the negotiations, it would probably come to pass naturally on its own that both delegations ultimately would make use of German. In fact, and despite all the measures of distance that were implemented, the subliminal presence of the German language contributed to undermining the symbolic distance between Germans and Israelis' that had been intended to be strictly maintained in the negotiations in Vassana. Significant to the disappearance of the provisors of desired estrangement was the transgression by the deputy head of the German delegation, Otto Küster. Küster broke through the established language taboo by approaching Felix Eliezer Schinar intimately. Before his diplomatic appointment as joint head with Yorah Tal of the Israeli delegation in Vassana, Felix Shinar had been the commercial director of the Israeli daily paper Haaretz. In the much photographed scene of the signing of the agreement, Shinar can be identified sitting on the far left. Otto Küster, however, cannot be seen in the photo. During the crisis, which sparked an interruption in the talks in May, he had resigned in a mood of profound disappointment to protest the apparently inflexible stance of the German government and did not return when the talks were resumed at the end of June. Otto Küster had been a professional, uh, by professional lawyer. As an opponent of the Nazis, he was stripped of his office as a judge in 1933. In the early Federal Republic, he made a name for himself as a restitution expert and state representative for questions of compensation in the Justice Ministry in Baden-Württemberg. Later, he was among the lawyers of Norbert Wollheim in the 1953-55 Farben trial, where he delivered a sensational summation of the proceedings under the much-quoted title Das Minimum. In Vassna, his engagement in the matter of restitution was palpable. (coughs) Bringing the negotiations with Israel to a successful conclusion appeared to be a personal matter for Kuster and earned him the antagonism of the German finance minister Fritz Schaeffer, who sought to fend off the Jewish demands with delaying tactics. Perhaps it was his favorable disposition towards Jews in Israel that seduced Küster to violate the prohibition in evoking proximity. Küster's transgression consisted of slipping the a note asking about his Swabian accent, which was discernible in his pronunciation of English. <laughs> it turned out that Küster and Schinar, formerly Schneebalk, had both attended the same high school in Stuttgart, On top of that, both former pupils had admired the same teacher there. They wrote and sent the teacher a jointly signed postcard from Vassana. With this, the carefully maintained language prohibition had been breached. The language matter reappeared unexpectedly in the frosty early morning encounter at the Luxembourg Town Hall on September 10th. It occurred when the delegations, waiting in the halls to enter the Salle de mariage, faced each other. Konrad Arnauer, not known for his polyglot abilities, headed towards Moshe Charette with hand outstretched to tell the Israeli foreign minister in German that he had been looking forward to this day with great expectation and joy. Charette replied in German, confirming the importance of the day. For Charette, from a Russian background and a person of many languages, German had, after the catastrophe, obviously lost its cosmopolitanism, which had been grounded in the tradition of the German classical age in literature. However, unlike the German-born and educated Israelis in the negotiation team, his rapport with the German language has never been an intimate one. Anyhow, Troad wasn't signified by an unappreciated feature of belonging to that German culture which now had to be suppressed. Back home, his answer to a journalist's question about how he had com- communicated as Isra- Israel's foreign minister with his German counterpart seemed somehow somewhat casual in the language. Of Goethe, he responded laconically. Charette, who was sparing with words, so well-versed in literature, was probably quite aware that the reference to Goethe would find little favor in the eyes and ears of the Israeli public. In time past, according to the ideal of Bildung, Goethe, along with Schiller, had being one of the sacred pillars of the acculturated Jewish middle class in German-speaking Central Europe and the East beyond. But this had changed. Just a year earlier, there had been a public outcry in Israel regarding the name of Goethe. The occasion had been the Hanseati Goethe Prize, awarded in 1951 to Martin Buber. Two years later, the philosopher and educator traveled from Jerusalem to Hamburg to receive the prize. Despite a waiting period decided upon in Israel as a response to public anger, Buber was a target of much hostility. The forbearance his supporters had pledged for by arguing that Goethe was less a German than he was a cosmopolitan who had written in the German language did not come about. The matter appeared to be a repetition of a scandal that had rocked the Yeshua in 1944 when the translator, Yaakov Kahan, was awarded the Tchenachowski Prize by the Tel Aviv municipality for his translation into Hebrew of Goethe's Faust, Part I, an award vehemently denounced by the Hebrew Writers Association at the time. It was not just a question of language or the furtive use of German which could have led to further embarrassment among the Israeli negotiators in Vassanar. Other emblems of suppressed previous belonging also became noticeable. Gior- Giora Joseftal was a leading member of the ruling social-democratic Mapai party in Israel and later treasurer of the Jewish Agency, where he where principally became involved with the challenge of mass immigration. As informal political head of the Israeli delegation in Vasanar, composed largely of civil servants, he enjoyed special authority. In a letter sent from the Netherlands to his wife's center in Israel, Yosef Tal expressed deep amazement that contrary to his expectations, he was not sitting with Avi at Germany that reminded him of the recent dark catastrophe but rather a Germany that had been reminiscent of the Weimar period he was so intimate with, Josef Stahl's own transformation away from German language and culture towards Jewish collective belonging goes back to the late nineteen twenties, given the emergent the, the emergent Nazi mood in his hometown Nuremberg, the young Georg Josef Stahl took refuge in an increasingly national Jewish identification. His inner Jewish conversion became known to others when he refused to take part in the annual Christmas celebration in his Jewish highly acculturated accru- 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 parental home. His father, Paul, a lawyer, factory owner, and high-ranking official of the German Employers Association had volunteered for army service in World War I. Serially wounded at the front, he had returned from the war a permanent invalid with the rank of a major, a military rank Jews seldom achieved in the German Imperial Army. The level of acculturation to German language and culture in the Josefstall family, long settled in Franconia and actively engaged in Jewish matters was extensive. Considering his original social milieu, Josef Dahl may have seen his own revenant in the executive head of the German delegation, Abraham Frohwein. In the photo of the signing of the Luxembourg Agreement, Frowein can be seen on the far right, just in the forefront, foreground. Although his first name suggested Frohwein was not of Jewish origin. The name Abraham reflects his Calvinist background. His father, also Abraham, stemmed from an old, well-established Elberfeld family of textile manufacturers. In the Weimar Republic, Abraham Fuhrmann Sr. held a leading position in the Reich Association of German Industry. When Hitler came to power, he withdrew as a long-standing member of the German National People's Party from public life. His son Abraham, however, had Jewish ancestors on the material maternal side. In his handwritten application for a post in the foreign service of the German Federal Republic in 1951, Frohwein, professionally active until then as a lawyer, mentioned that as a mischling of the second degree, a so-called quarter Jew, he had been disqualified for appointment as a notary public in the Third Reich. In addition, he had been denied promotion to the rank Of non commissioned officer in the Wehrmacht for that same reason. Jakob Altmaier is seated at the opposite end of the ceremonial table on the side of the German delegation. His presence there must have been discomforting given the stern demarcation that had been staged between German and Jews. Strictly speaking, Altmaier's presence in Luxembourg was out of place for two reasons. As a Jew and member of the Bundestag in the SPD, he did not belong to the German negotiation, negotiating delegation. The Israeli side had serious reservation about Konrad Adenauer's initial attempt to make Altmaier a member of the German deputation exactly because of his Jewish origin. The German Chancellor's request was rejected out of hand. However, Altmaier's efforts in promoting early contacts between Jewish and Israeli representatives and German officials in matters relating to reparations were appreciated by all. It was those efforts which are so to have ultimately induced Adenauer to invite him to the table for the ceremonial signing of the agreement as part of the German delegation. Altmaier, a backbencher of the Bundestag-SPD opposition, was by no means indifferent to the gestures of apprehension. Adenauer's invitation to be present at the signing ceremony in Luxembourg gave him a great sense of satisfaction. He saw himself as a pioneer of the whole initiative and often said so. He explained his return in 1949 to Germany as motivated in significant measure by, as he liked to put it, his wish to serve the Jewish cause. Given such close identification with the Jewish people, it was likely not easy to find himself sitting on the German side vis-à-vis Jews and Israelis. His dramatic description of the signing ceremony in Luxembourg, where he saw Moshe Charette, with trembling lips, standing pale as death before the German Chancellor, may well have been in keeping with his own emotional state at the staged event. Deathly silence in the hall, only the pen scratching, and the smell of burned sealing wax in the shadow of six million murdered, slain European Jews. This was how the Jewish member of the German Bundestag perceived the scene unfolding in the Circle Sal Flamand, a scene that, he added, no Dante or Shakespeare could have conceived with all its grandeur and poetic force. The theatrical impressions drafted by Altmaier may have been exaggerated. Nonetheless, he certainly had not lost sight of the emerging circumstances at the table. A kind of initiation had come to pass with the ceremony of the signing of the agreement in Luxembourg, the seal of an act of foundation. For the Jewish part, the act of reparation embodied, aside from material restitution, a collective recognition and a collective acknowledgement of a collectively perpetrated crime the representatives of the Jewish people viewed the agreement in Luxembourg as an act of posterior appreciation. It's honor brought and bestowed by the legitimate representatives of their former tormentors. And since this act restores collective Jewish honor in recognition of the criminal acts committed by Germany, that recognition through restitution elevated the Jewish collective as such. The act of initiation performed in the Luxembourg Town Hall with the signing of the Reparation Agreement was not restricted to the Jewish collective alone. It was also significantly constitutive for the recently established German body politic the Federal Republic. The German side made good grace of the fact that the Reparation Agreement was the first bilateral international treaty concluded by West Germany since it was granted partial sovereignty in 1951, in spite of the fact that these these external circumstances, as well as the choice of venue and time of the Luxembourg ceremony, carried the marks of an initiative whose importance might appear of a more secondary value. Luxembourg had been chosen for staging the act of signing the restitution agreement at the early hour of 8 o'clock on September 10, 1952, for another reason. The inaugural session of the Special Council of Ministers of the European Community of Coal and Steel. For three days from September 8th to September 10th, and on the last day, on the 10th until noon, the Councils, very first session had convened in the same same circle, Salle Flamante, attended by Robert Schumann, Alessi de Gasperi, and other leading European prime ministers and ministers presided over by Konrad Adenauer. The fact that the venue and time For the signing ceremony of the Germany-Israeli-Jewish Restitution Agreement might also have been a matter of convenience, should not be interpreted as lessening the genuine sentiments generated by that act. Its prominence could be seen in Konrad Adenauer's immediate reaction to the signing ceremony and against the backdrop of his deep religious convictions and his experience in the Nazi Reich. During the early stages of establishing context, Jakob Altmaier described Adenauer to his associate, Eliyahu Livne, then consul of the state of Israel in Munich, as a practicing Catholic first and a German second. After the ceremony, Adenauer went to a local chapel and left the house of prayer with tears in his eyes, most likely overwhelmed by the power of the initiation that was felt by all. Another private private aspect of Adenauer's personal story tends to support the claim that the Chancellor was deeply moved by the act of laying down a moral foundation for the recently established Federal Republic. His wife, Gussie had attempted suicide in Braunweiler Prison while in Gestapo detention in 1944 and sustained injuries which would prove fatal for her in 1948. Adenauer had been more severely persecuted by the Nazi regime than may have been beneficial in German eyes to his political ambitions in the immediate post-war period. He was not eager to inform the public of the trouble that brought about the death of his wife. The Luxembourg agreement assumed the quality of a foundational act. The staging of an acknowledgement against the backdrop of the mass crimes committed several years earlier had a strong emotional impact on Jakob Altmaier. The repetitive flashes of the photographer's camera illuminated a panorama in which Altmaier's own political biographical condition must have felt painfully outdated. The energy in the ceremonial hall cut straight through Altmaier, the Jew and German Social Democrat. The choreographed constellation of two opposing, pragmatically adjusting collectives at the ceremonial table occurred in a highly critical moment, a point when the German Social Democrat of Jewish provenance, who had lost over 30 members of his family in the Holocaust, had embarked upon the path of transformation, of conversion, so to speak, in becoming an avowed member of the Jewish people. Altmaier was shedding his old skin for new. The conversion Jakob Altmaier suffered through from a German social democrat of Jewish extraction, or as he put it, a German of social democratic faith, to a determined dependent of the Jewish people was at the time and later after the catastrophe symptomatic. Born in the Roman Catholic town of Flursheim am Main, in 1889 he came from an old, well-established provincial Jewish family. In a certain sense, the tale of the emancipation of German Jewry in the 19th century culminated paradigmatically in his life story. For Altmaier, it had condensed into an ossified and dogmatically rigid social democratic worldview based on class and grounded in an unconditioned belief in historical progress and abiding loyalty to the party. In keeping with a strong desire for symbolic staging, it was no accident that he had joined the SPD in 1913 on the date of Babel's birthday. In troubled times, he ventured onto a political ground somewhere between the majoritarian social democrats and the independents. At the installation of the Nazi regime, he fled to Paris, where, with the communist circle accompanying William Münzenberg in the mid-1930s, he advocated a people's front for Germany. As a correspondent in the Spanish Civil War and in the Balkans, he was active during the war, first in Greece, then later in Cairo and Algiers for the British Secret Service. Altmaier was an internationalist of the old school. Reality was interpreted exclusively in the language of the social. His Jewish origins had no meaning for political engagement and actions. His transformation into a member of the Jewish collective was attributable solely to the Holocaust. When Adlau invited the Jewish Social Democrat to the ceremonial table in the Luxembourg Town Hall as a token of gratitude to his service as a middleman, the Chancellor was probably not aware that that Altmaier perhaps felt out of place, apparently seated on the wrong side of the table. Yet the Jewish and Israeli side didn't seem inclined to accept the Jewish member of the German Bundestag as one of their own. After the Holocaust, after the, col- after the collapse of previous satanity, no place was reserved for a third party, the party of social class, henceforth ultimately abrogated by Auschwitz. The congregation assembled at the ceremonial table in Luxembourg and contained in the, pro- in the, photo-, and contained in the photo image had further irritations in store. One was a barely visible young man next to Nahum Goldman, Benjamin Ferenc, a member of the Jewish delegation representing the Claims Conference. In the interwar period, Benjamin Ferenc had emigrated with his parents from Romania to the United States. He studied law at Harvard and, at age of 27, had been chief prosecutor in the Einsatzgruppen trial at Nuremberg. At the time of the Luxembourg encounter, he was head of the Jewish Restitution Successor Organization, the IRSO, established in 1948 to deal with settlement of heirless Jewish property in Germany. Benjamin Ferentz and Jakob Altmaier were not strangers across from one another at the table in Luxembourg. Several months before, they had clashed in a dispute, an angry controversy that had something strange and uncanny about it, and took the form of a sharply worded written exchange. In a letter to Ferenc dated May 6, 1952, Altmaier opposed the sale initiated by the IRSO of the Jewish Cemetery in Flöhrsheim am Main, his original hometown. In highly emotional tones, Altmaier wrote Ferenc that the cemeteries were the only and most valuable entities that remained for Jewish communities in Germany also, he admitted those communities no longer had any real future there. The Florsheim Cemetery had long since ceased operations. The last burial had been in 1940. Months before the November 38 pogrom, residents of Florsheim had vandalized the graves and desecrated the grounds of the entire cemetery. The Nazi decree of the dejudification of land holdings led to the sale of the cemetery in two parcels in 1940 and 1943 to a fleursheim gardener. The gardener removed the ruined gravestone, leveled the land, and then planted grain. Reportedly, body parts came to the surface during plowing, and children were seen playing with skeletal remains, especially skulls. In 1945, U.S. Army officers inspected the land and carried out a formal property control. In 1947, the municipality had three of the four retaining walls of the former cemetery grounds repaired and the gate pillars restored. Holocaust survivors ordered new gravestones prepared for their relatives. These were placed at a central point in the cemetery, forming a purely decorative memorial. On August 17, 1947, the cemetery was rededicated with many residents of Flörsheim in attendance at the ceremony. Jakob Altmeier came from Paris. Representatives of Jewish DP's in the camps in Wiesbaden and Zeilsheim also attended. The cottage for the death was given by an American military rabbi. The question of ownership remained undecided the IRSO entered negotiations on restitution of the cemetery with the Reich treasury represented by the finance minister of the state of Hesse. In February 1952, the parties in the restitution proceedings concluded an agreement at the Office for Property Control and Reparations in Frankfurt am Main. The agreement made it possible for the IRSO to propose the sale of half of the cemetery grounds to a cement manufacturer. This plan met with opposition from the Flörsheim municipality. It wished to place the cemetery grounds under monuments protection and requested Altmaier to intervene with Ferenc. That ultimately led to Altmaier's sharply worded letter to the Erzo in Nuremberg. On February 13, 1963, a burial was conducted at the Flörsheim Jewish Cemetery. It was Jakob Altmaier who was laid to rest. Eulogies were given by Carlo Schmid, Herbert Wehner, and Felix Schinar, who had been head of the Israeli delegation in Luxembourg in 1952 and now represented the permanent Israeli purchasing mission to Germany based in Cologne. Jakob Altmaier was not to rest in peace. The cemetery would be desecrated time and again, over the years, and an inscription left on the gravestone of the Altmaier family in large, in large white letters revealed the Nazi death rate, Judah After the catastrophe, Germany was confined by a harem, a Jewish ban. No one had issued the prohibition, and yet its presence was ubiquitous. The land of the murderers in the liturgical language of damnation was to be ostracized for all eternity. History, however, took a different path due, in large part, to the agreement in Luxembourg, signed speechlessly on the early morning of September 10, 1952.